Welcome everybody to the latest Truth and Consequences Zoom chat. And this is uh, a personal indulgence of mine. I uh, usually talk about politics on this Zoom chat, but today we're talking about Bob Dylan with Ben Burl, who produces what I think is one of my favorite podcasts, which is the Bob Dylan album by album podcast. I discovered this recently, fell in love with it, uh, uh, referenced it on Twitter, and we became contact with each other. And now here he is, talk to us about Dylan. So Ben, welcome. So glad to have you here. Thanks for having me. It's, it's a pleasure. I don't, you know, there's not enough white guys talking about other white guys in the world. So <laughs> long met continue. It's a real, it's a really, it, you're right. It's, it's really lacking. And so I'm glad that we had a chance to do that today. Uh, in the chat, I have put uh, links to um, the Dylan podcast. If you haven't subscribed, you should. Ben tells me it's picking up again for season eight uh, in uh, beginning of the, the new year. I've also put his Twitter handle there. You can pick, listen to him on Amazon Radio, there's a show Badlands and uh, Blood and Tracks, which is on iHeartRadio, correct? Yeah, iHeart and Amazon, yeah, gave us the money to do those podcasts, bless them. Nice, nice. And you do this podcast by yourself, basically, correct? This is your uh, solo uh, effort? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, it's, it's that. That's why there's so few episodes and there's such long gaps between seasons. Because, well, two, well, two reasons. Because one, it's me doing it all on my own. Because I refuse to give up any anything to anyone. Um, so like you have to script it and edit it and and work it all out. And but also, I don't. I don't want to get to the stage where I can't listen to Bob Dylan of my own free will, and I only listen to him to kind of analyze endlessly. Um, so yeah, that's why there's so many gaps between it. But yeah, it's just it is me on my own. It's, it's me doing everything. Um, well, that's great, and I assume it takes a while to produce these shows. I'm assuming that this is a this is a, a, a big effort to even do even do like one record to analyze one record the way that you do. Yeah, it's hard, especially because there's so much written about Dylan. Um, sure, and you you kind of you have to go through and pick out what you agree with and extend on those points, or you know you have to work out how you feel about them or what you feel about, and, and that's ever changing as well. That that constantly is shifting, um, so it's often hard to get to a conclusion. So I spend like weeks and weeks writing the things and then they take about an hour to record. So it's quite a big kind of shift with, with I can imagine. Big... Yeah, I, I have to imagine just that, because there is so many different avenues you can take on any, any one of his of his records, even one of his songs. Um, OK, so I want to start off. I mean, first, of all, I just want to say again, I want to thank and bring you. I want to thank for indulging me. You know, we talk about mostly politics on this podcast, on the Zoom chat. Um, but this is one where I just wanted to talk to Ben because I really enjoy his take on Dylan. And I'm curious, how did you become a Dylan obsessive? What was your first interaction with, with Bob Dylan's music? I think I'm, people my age that are Bob Dylan fans had a very similar experience. We grew up with these songs like they were nursery rhymes. They've always been there for as long as I can remember. I think I, I heard them very young and they've stayed with me um and that was through my dad my dad's a big bob dylan fan um and still is so every time we get in the car and take like a couple of hour car journeys which in the in the uk is a long car journey i know it's different in america but we spent like a couple of hours going to visit family um and he'd always play bob dylan like back to back so i'd hear stuff like forever young at a very early age and that would stay with me um and then i sort of kind of not fell out of love with him but because he was just so familiar to me. I didn't really take him up as a hobby. Um, and then when I went to, uh, just before I went to university, um, when I'm, so you go to university when you're sort of 18 in the UK, around about that age. Um, and a couple of weeks before I went, uh, I saw my dad watching Don't Look Back. on. It was on TV and he was just flicking through the channels and it was on. And I saw one of Dylan's press conferences and I couldn't, 
believe this was that guy. I, he just looked like the most punk rock man I've ever seen because there's all these like snarky English journalists. And I work with English journalists and they are they are pretty snarky. Um, and they were sort of trying to knock him down a couple of pegs. And he was just not having any of it. And and he was the smartest person in the room by some <laughs> far distance. Um, and I just thought, wow, this is the guy that I used to listen to in my dad's car. And he looked so different to how I thought he was going to look. And he talked so differently to how I thought he was going to talk. Um, and then I went up to university and I... I spent my entire first term buying a new Dylan album every week on CD. And just really? in the space of two months, I discovered some of the most incredible recorded music I've ever heard. And it blew my mind. Um, so, yeah, it was a kind of nice rediscovery of him that really put me on this kind of obsessive path. Well, it's funny. I'm a, I mean, I think I'm a, a little older than you, but I've had these different periods of my life where I've sort of become, I mean, I first listened to Dylan when I was in high school. Um, I had a good friend of mine who used to play a lot of Dylan. We used to, we used to play on guitar together. We used to play, I think I played I think Tangle Up and Blue was the first thing I ever played on guitar, first thing I learned to play on guitar. Um, and so, it, but then it, go, it kind of ebbs and, 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 and wanes because at certain points, you know, you listen to the other stuff. And then every once in a while you put on a Dylan record, you're like, oh my gosh. And then it's sort of, you go down a rabbit hole with Dylan. And, I, and one thing that's happened since I started listening to your podcast is I've gone down that rabbit hole again. A lot of albums that I have just not given a lot of attention to I started giving more attention to. I want to talk a little bit about that in, in a few minutes, but one thing I'm sort of curious for, from you, to hear from you, you've done this now for what, four seasons, four years mm -hmm. you've been doing this? this four, four years, yeah. What have you learned uh, about Bob Dylan from doing this podcast that you didn't <laughs> know before? A lot of useless facts, a lot of them. <laughs> um, my wife is so bored of talking about him. Um, but I think I've learned, do you know, I think the main thing I've learned, and this is what we were just discussing before we started, and I know you're a big believer in this too. I think the main thing I've learned is that his music, in terms of the sonics of the songs and, and the way they're put together musically, they are extremely underrated when it comes to Dylan. Because when I was a more casual fan, obviously we knew that he was this lyricist and people call him a poet, which I don't necessarily agree with. Um, he was, that was his kind of, his big thing, if you like, his, his USP, if you like. Um, but the more I listened to the music, the more I was like, Hang on a minute. He's made a he's made a reggae album here, and the the sonics of this album called Oh Mercy are some of the best sonics I've ever heard, and no one's talking about it. And the way he he reinvented himself sonically, I think, is so underrated. And people talk about you know David Bowie famously being this chameleon in terms of music, and he was. I think Bob Dylan did it as well as Bowie, but I think Bowie was much better at marketing himself as that person, and he he made yeah. kind of much broader strokes. And it was, and his big kind of music uh, musical shifts were maybe a little bit more popular, especially when he got into the kind of pop era of things. And Bob never really had that similar era, but the way he shifts musically from one era to the next, one period to the next, is so underrated. And when you actually, and with this podcast, obviously, I did I did this, but when you start picking it apart you realize how clever some of the musical parts of his music are. And that's completely forgetting the lyrics, the, the one thing that everyone kind of talks about with Dylan. Um, and I know we'll come on to it, but especially albums like Desire. I mean, Desire sounds completely different to, you know, say the freewheeling. And Oh Mercy yes. sounds a world away compared to say, you know, um, I don't know, uh, like an early 60s album or whatever. Um, and I don't, I don't think people... I think I don't think casual fans really realize that. I think they're just in the kind of 
mode of old oh, Dylan's this singer songwriter with an acoustic guitar, or these he's right. this old guy doing Frank Sinatra covers. But there's so much in between that I think is is kind of ignored. I think that lyrically, there's an, a, a, an obvious inclination to focus on, you know, his early '60s material, and and that that is what sort of made him into a star. Um, but I go for me personally, I listen to album like Blonde on Blonde, and I, I think musically it is one of the most. I mean, first of all, I should say it is my favorite Dylan album. It's my favorite album of all time, um, and I think largely because musically it is just phenomenal. The sound on that album. The thin mercury, well, thin wild mercury sound is just extraordinary. And I wrote about the other day, you know, in the Vision of Johanna, which is probably my favorite Dylan song. You know, it's lyrically, it's fantastic. It's a beautiful song. It's a fun, it's, it's an enigmatic song. But as I was writing about this, you know, musically, it's what I've always loved about that. The, the drums, for example, on that song are just fantastic. I mean, the, the Dylan's guitar on that song, the, the insistence of strumming that he does, that really builds attention to the song. It is phenomenal. And I think to your point, you're right. He doesn't get enough credit for it. And just for me personally, like I, I look back at like this before you got on, on the air, but the 66 period, he went electric. And that sort of really greasy, messy, chaotic sound he's playing with the, 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 the Hawks through these like shitty PAs in like British music halls. Like it, it's, I love that sound. It is to me the essence of rock and roll. And to me, it's also this incredible shift in rock and roll. I think about that that album, that that period coming right after you know the Beatles did Revolver and Rubber Soul, which are which are don't get me wrong, love 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 those are Revolver my favorite Beatles record, love those albums, but they're highly produced. And here's Dylan doing something completely different, right? This very kind of messy rock and roll sound that I I, I think its impact is sort of underappreciated in in the history of rock and roll. No, I completely agree, and I think there was a stiffness to the Beatles that Dylan just never had. And I don't know whether that's an American, an English thing or British thing. I, I don't know. Maybe it is, but it, it it definitely feels like, especially with those 66 live shows that Dylan was just operating on a higher level. And I, I know there's, there's, there's pluses and minuses to both that the, those two artists and you know, if you compare the Beatles and Dylan, you're you're going to go mad at the end of it. Um, but there's Bob always feels like he was just doing things his own way, and that might not necessarily be true, but it it does feel like he was just exploring avenues he wanted to explore. Whereas the Beatles felt like they were doing it in a very kind of much more structured, kind of stiffer way. Right. Um, right. But I I've, I think I listen to those shows from '66, and it just sounds like. I mean, I said to you again before we started. If you played that to someone and they didn't know it's Bob Dylan, I think they they'd think that's a '77 punk show, and that just shows you kind of totally. where. No, I to it's totally it's true, and I and I think it's also that he had a great band that he was playing with as well. I think that makes a, a huge difference as well. I mean, um, people, uh, I know Robbie Robertson has some personal issues people don't like about him, but he's a phenomenal guitar player, um, and his solo on the Royal Albert Hall show on John. Just like Tom Thumb's Blues, one of my all-time favorite moments in rock and roll history. It's just a phenomenal solo. Um, but I, that gets a point that I, I, I want to talk about a little bit. You know, I was listening to one of your old episodes you did uh, on, on Dylan's 80th birthday where you asked, why does Dylan matter? And the first person you asked had the best answer. Uh, he, said, he, he said, Dylan is so clearly unconcerned with anything other than his artistic expression and integrity. Um, and that is the thing about him that from your podcast, I really have sort of um, thought a lot about the, 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 the 
not giving a fuckness to Dylan is extraordinary. And I'll tell you something funny about, I'll mention the 66 thing. I was reading uh, recently uh, Dylan's, I have it right here in front of me, Clinton Halen's book on Dylan. And he has a story in there about Levon, Levon Helm quitting the Hawks, the drummer for the, for the, later for the band, but it, it was running with the Hawks at the time, quits the band because he's just so tired of getting booed. Every event they go to, they're getting booed and he can't stand it. And he says to somebody, you know, Dylan enjoys it. He gets some perverse pleasure out of being booed. Um, and I find that it's some, it's, it's fascinating to me that he really seen. And what, what do you sort of, I mean, is that, to, to, do you, do you sort of have a, when you talk about why Dylan matters, is that, do you have a sort of similar instinct as well, that there's a sense of him that he sort of represents sort of the ethos of rock and roll of just remaining completely loyal to his vision his and his artistic expression. Sorry, your, your, um, your volume cuts out there. Oh, you lose me there. I'm sorry. Oh, that's weird. Okay. Oh, that's sorry good. about that. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. Um, so, I mean, and I'll guess I'll, I'll pick up the point. We talked about it before, beforehand that I said, I think Dylan is a punk rocker. And you agree with me on that. And can you talk a little bit more about why you think that's, why you think that's the case with Dylan? I think you're, I think you're right about the why Dylan matters thing, because I think <clears throat> I love him because, and it goes back to that, that very first um, me seeing him on the TV when my dad was flicking through the channels and seeing him in the press conference, because I, I feel like he really definitely does his own thing, but almost does it as a contrarian, but always for the right reasons. And I feel like every step of the way, he's not done what we think he is going to do and what, especially as a fan base, people feel like he should be doing. And he's always done that. And I think if you do do that, if you do challenge your audience, it's better for everyone involved. Otherwise, he will just end up like any number of artists who came out at the, in the mid-60s and he will just end up making the same album again and again and again and get stuck in that that lane. Right. Whereas Dylan's always challenged himself and challenged us. And it goes through everything. I think I, I, I read on Twitter a while ago, people were still getting annoyed about him doing adverts, much more casual Dylan fans, him doing commercials, sorry. Um, and I think that's the best thing ever because I think if, if people are going to label you the voice of a generation, this counterculture voice, the one thing you should do if you are this true rebel, if you're this true counterculture person, the one thing you should do is do a, a commercial for a major corporation because that's what no Absolutely. one's expecting. That's exactly, exactly his whole his whole point of his him being an artist is is that he's not going to be told what to do. And I think whether or not that was the actual reason for him doing it, I suspect it was part of the reason. I also suspect he just thought, I want some money or I want to do exactly. this. Exactly. Which again plays into him just doing whatever he wants to do. And I think we've seen that in every aspect of his career, pretty much, including him releasing this new book. I mean, it came when it was, when the press conference, when the press release came out, it was, it was styled as Dylan writing these essays on songs. And that's what we've got. But also at the same time, it's a coffee table book. It's a coffee table book with nice yeah, pictures. Basically. And it's nicely yes. bound. And people are, people on Twitter are getting annoyed about it saying, oh, it's a bit throwaway. And it's a bit, you know, it's not, it's not quite what I was expecting. I was like, of course it's not what you're expecting. It's Bob Dylan. It's Bob Dylan. Like, exactly. He's done Victoria's I, I Secret mean, the the man wrote a memoir, what, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, <laughs> volume one. There's been no volume two, no volume three. Oh, and, uh, he made and, it that, and, and, and a lot of it appears he made up. Uh, I, re I reread it, actually. The, the section on Oh Mercy, when you talk about the recording of Oh Mercy, feels almost completely 
not completely, but largely made up. He tells this great story about going on his motorcycle with his wife and meeting some strange guy at a roadhouse. And I just struggled to believe that story is actually true. Uh, but what's interesting about that book too is that he just tells these sort of four slices of, of life. One is recording of New Morning, one's recording of Oh Mercy, one is his period when he gets to New York. Um, you know, and it's just like this really, I don't know, it, it, there's no real rhyme and reason to it. Not a, not a traditional memoir. He's not playing the, not doing the thing you expect him to do. Um, and I think that to your point is what makes him, and I think looking at the music, you can talk about uh, the lyrics, you can talk about the, the, the cultural impact, but there's something about the idea of rock and roll as a fundamentally kind of rebellious art form, as a against the grain kind of art form. and if you look at the history of rock and roll, I mean, once the Rolling Stones are the bad boys of rock and roll, but they don't have the same kind of ethos that that Dylan does. Very few do. I mean, the one I think I think of Johnny Rod and the Sex Pistols. Those were guys who had a, had a theory, had an idea what they wanted to produce, and they produced even though it was a little bit contrived because it was Malcolm McLaren. But still, they were very much like this is the sound that we're going to try to produce and create, and this is and they were very you know loyal to that sound. And Dylan has been throughout his career, not so much loyal to a certain sound, but to a aesthetic, to an idea that I'm gonna do whatever I wanna do. And, and I love this line, this line in Chronicles where he says that his, one reason why he began his never ending uh, tour was that his, his audiences were just standing around staring at him, they weren't participating. And that's what he wanted to change. That's one of the reasons why he, he, he started touring constantly. And he still does, 80 shows I think he did last year, or this year. Yeah, it's, it's, it's crazy. And I think, I think he's probably, you know, I was I was talking about this with someone else a while ago, and I think he's probably one of those um, artists that is addicted to the road. And because they've got that lifestyle, they he he will never not be on tour. I think I think he'll be one of those people that will be touring right up until the very end, which is great for us. But I think it, the live shows are a big part of his his artistry as well. And I think for him, these songs are recorded and released, but that's only one form of those songs. I think he, he's constantly changing them live. And we know, especially with, you know, you look at the the Blood on the Tracks era songs and, and the, the lyrics are kind of always evolving and always changing. And I think for him, that's a big part of, of his songs, that they are constantly being worked on. He's constantly chipping away at them, still live to this day and constantly reworking them. I think if, if he'd have been, if Dylan had started coming out now with music, I think he'd have been one of those people that kind of changes the songs and then re-uploads them to Spotify or Apple Music. Because I think that would have really appealed to him but he's got to you know he's got to do it live these days but i, I think that's a that's a massive part and another probably underrated bit of, of him uh, of him as an artist well this is something that, that i really learned from your podcast is that the and i think i knew this but it was sort of you really drill this point home the way he records is unusual um it's often one or two takes of a song there's not a lot of rehearsals there's no overdubbing um you know it's uh, and and there are famous moments, uh, Queen Jane on the Highway 61 record where the guitar is in the wrong phase, I believe. And you yeah. mentioned, I didn't realize it's untangled up in blue. The harmonica is in the wrong key, um, but he keeps it. And there is this element there of, of, of him sort of saying, this is the song as it exists at this moment, even if it's the wrong key, even if I flub a chord and it's gonna change. But right now, this is what I, this is what, the, this is what Tangled Up in Blue is, but a year from now, it's something totally different. And it is an interesting, I think, very different from other artists that I'll tell you a funny story. I was I saw Dylan last fall and I took a friend who's she's not from the U.S. So she doesn't know Dylan's music that well. And he played um, most likely you go your way and I go mine. And and 
I was sort of trying to sing along, but it's obviously very difficult because he always changes the, the, the way he sings these songs. And, and she said to me, why is nobody singing along? And I said, well, um, you know, welcome to a Bob Dylan show. It's really hard to sing along because it doesn't want you to sing along. It, doesn't, it makes it impossible for you. But that's an element too of, I think, what's interesting to me the, is, is, and I think really comes across from listening to your, to your podcast is that he just records it and, that, and, that, and that's the song at that moment. And I don't know if I read it in your thing, but I saw this great, uh, great story somewhere. Maybe you had it um, in the Infidels recording. He leans off, he leaves off this great song called Blind Willie McTell. People think is one of his best songs. It's a great tune. And a friend of his asked him, why did you leave it off? It's a great song. And he said, I'll make other albums. Like he just didn't really seem to care. It, it, it wasn't something that really bothered him all that much. And I think, you know, am I, I mean, and I'm curious, am I, am I, am I oversimplifying this? But I do feel like he really just kind of records in the moment and then kind of lets the chips fall where they may. That's definitely it. That is definitely it. And I think that that does 90% of the time serve the songs really well because he does capture that moment, especially, <clears throat> you know, when you listen to Blood on the Tracks, you can hear the, the uh, buttons of his cardigan knocking against the back of his acoustic guitar. And most other artists would probably record that or edit it, but he leaves it in and it, it adds something to them. And, and not only are you getting kind of the songs as fresh as they possibly can be, but you're getting a little bit of kind of charm and a little bit of, of, of atmosphere with it. Um, but I completely agree about, about the live music as well. I think it, 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 that's part of it. You know, he's trying to capture these songs in that particular moment. And that, that happens on record and live too. It's funny you should say about trying to sing along because we saw him in, in Hyde Park around the corner, actually. And um, he played like a Rolling Stone. And it was a, the piano version, which is be, it's a beautiful version. And it's, it's on YouTube somewhere, a live version. You should go and seek it out if you've not heard it before. Um, but it comes to the chorus and it, it comes like they're leading into the chorus and everyone's getting ready in the crowd. And it goes right up to it and the chorus is just about to kick in and he stops and slows it right down. So everyone starts singing, how does it? F and then he just stops. And I thought that is, he's doing that deliberately, doing that deliberately. So 30,000 people start singing along and then go, oh, <laughs> but it's, that's, that's that's perfect <laughs> that is part of it for sure um you know i i, I it's interesting i mean one thing also that i really enjoyed the and by the way if people if you have any questions anything you want to put in the chat please uh put them please put some questions in or if you want to something you want to ask them directly you know raise your raise your hand or something but but please you know this is supposed to be interactive so i'd love to hear your comments as well um, and there are a lot of themes that you talk about in his music. And, I, and one that I, I, I think I hadn't fully really appreciated was sort of the religious theme. And it's interesting because where we sort of I, we sort of met on Twitter was I was disagreeing with your take on John Wesley Harding, which is one of my favorite Dylan records, um, which I hadn't, it's a very religious album. Um, and we think of his religious period, you know, Dylan did these three religious albums in, in the late seventies, um, uh, Shot of Love, Saved, and Gotta, um, um, Gotta serve somebody, right? No, is it? No, slow train coming, slow train coming, sorry. Um, and, but the religious aspects of this are throughout his music. Um, the other big theme that I came across, that I think about in listening to, to your podcast is that much of his career, at least post 60, can be defined as a response to fame. And that really, by the way, comes across in Chronicles where there's a whole huge section in that book about how fame almost destroyed him. And I'm, I'm curious what you think about that. Is that, do you think that's still true of, of him today or is that sort of a 70s kind of 80s uh, take on Dylan? I think definitely 70s and 80s, definitely. And I, but I think the whole, I see this, I see Time Out of Mind onwards as a kind of scorched earth era where everything's kind of terrible and the world's falling apart. And I think kind of fame 
from his point of view, maybe plays a role in that. But I think particularly, um, in my opinion, Highway 61 really is a response to fame in parts. There's there's bits of that album that I really, for me, uh, there's there's lyrics that I feel like it's him having got to the top of the mountain, having achieved these great things. And he's sort of standing there thinking, actually, I don't, I don't feel any better or I don't feel like fulfilled by any of this. And I think for me, again, I think I, think I mentioned this in the episode, um, but songs like Desolation Row, I always feel like have a bit of that knocking around in them. And there's that great line where he says, you know, when he says, when you asked me how I was doing, was that some kind of joke? And it's it's kind right. of like he just sounds like a a man that's exhausted and has been on tour and has taken a lot of drugs. And he's got to that kind of just sheer like, I mean, they say with these days with artists, don't they? They're suffering from exhaustion. And it does feel like that whole album is a man suffering from exhaustion. I don't think that's the only thing going can, on there. But you can hear it in the sound of that album, too. Yeah. I mean, I think you can hear it in the in the in the blonde on blonde sound a little bit also. I and mean, particularly blonde on blonde as well. Yeah, I, there is. I mean, first of all, a lot of it's fueled obviously by amphetamines, which he was, you know, I think almost certainly addicted to at this point. But there is like a there's an intensity to those records that I think is reflective of of what you're talking about. And I want to get to because it's a great question that that my, my good friend Eric Ashman asked. Can you talk about what happens to Dylan's influence as rock has become? less prominent in the zeitgeist the past 25 years. I mean, does he still matter even as his kind of type of music has become much less prominent in in rock in popular music? I think he, yeah, I think he's, he can't help but still matter. I think he's, the, we're still feeling the shockwaves of of his initial kind of burst of, of work and that's still being felt throughout the music industry. And I think it's still inspiring people. I think it's it's obviously... No, no one can, no one can uh, stay at the top forever, and no one can can be this all encompassing inspiration. Even you know the Beatles. So I think he probably is going to be one of those artists that is is going to have a lot of longevity in terms of that. But I don't know. It's hard. It'd be interesting. To, it'd be interesting to to talk to some you know like uh, a, a current hip hop artist or someone like that, and to see what their take is on on that. Maybe I'm not the right person to ask, but. I I can see shades of his work in in much younger artists, um, but I don't know. Maybe that's yeah. Maybe that's one for sort of you know Frank Ocean or someone like that to answer. Yeah, I mean, I, it's curious because you you. I mean, I think the influence is more um, subtle. I mean, you know, the way I think about Dylan as far as his influence, you know, I talked earlier about sort of that rock and roll sound that he creates in the late in the mid sixties. I think is I think is really revolutionary. I mean, you can you can hear so much of it in in a lot of the rock of the late 60s, especially sort of, I mean, sort of the grunge, grunge rock. I mean, I think I listen to someone like, you know, Neil Young and and um, Crazy Horse, and I think, God, they must have listened to those albums or must have like been influenced by that sound because it's a very similar kind of a sound. It's a very, I call it a greasy sound, you know? It's kind of messy, but it's really, it's really very loud guitars and, you know, almost shrill um, uh, sound to it that is really um, effective. But I think also, I mean, look, the guy is the, you know, original singer-songwriter. Right. I mean, this is, and by the way, this is a, a debate that I have often is that I think Dylan's influence, in, you know, England has great bands. The U.S. does not. The U.S. has great singer songwriters. England has it, but not the same way. It's a very different kind of musical aesthetic in the two countries. And I think part of it's because of our individualism as Americans. But I think also a lot of it's to do with Dylan because he really does kind of create this idea of almost confessional 
poetic lyrics. You know, I, another side of Bob Dylan, which is an underrated record, it's sort of the beginning of that process to some extent with him, that it moves away from the protest song to more inward looking songs. But that kind of confessional songwriting, does that happen before Dylan? Does it happen without Dylan? I don't know if it happens the same way. Yeah, I think you're. I think you're right. I think he's he's a he's, if if not the first, he's the one that that makes it. You know, puts the line in the sand with it. And I think you probably wouldn't get. You know, I, I love Joni Mitchell, and she's probably the only person for me that gets close to Dylan in terms of the way her lyrics make me feel. But I don't know if you would have got an album like Blue without Dylan having done what he did first. And that's no disrespect to Joni Mitchell. She probably would have got there on her own. But I think in terms of that record becoming a big success and her being allowed to do it and then releasing it and then it becoming a success, I think that's hard to achieve without someone like Dylan having put that kind of line in the sand for singer-songwriters. I agree. I, I think I think it's a huge influence. Um, uh, <laughs> Eric's going to talk a lot, about, a lot about bands here, but I, and this is a debate I have often about the best American rock and roll bands, and there aren't many. Uh, you know, I'm a big I I fan. I think... Sorry, yeah. sorry to interrupt, but I think it's you just saying that has kind of brought an idea that I'm I'm pretty sure that England's got good bands because we've got uh, a, a, a class problem in this country. Would you believe? Um, and I yeah, think yeah, the, right. work, the working class band is a force to be reckoned with, and I think it's it's a very kind of anti-establishment thing, and I think they thrive in England. Those type of bands, but it's interesting you say we we do have good bands, but they're they're often hit and miss in terms of success in America. So maybe, maybe I think it's just a, a, a British thing. I think a, a working class British band are kind of very welcomed in this country. And that's why they become a success. Whereas a working class singer is not quite the same thing. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I, I mean, I, I think of this more from the American standpoint, you know, that we have this kind of ethos of individualism in the, in the United States. And so that tends to, I think maybe maybe lend itself more to this sort of singer songwriter prominence, but this is a debate I have often about the fact that there are very few great American bands. And I mentioned the Grateful Dead. I think I mean, I'm a big Grateful Dead fan. I think they are the, easily the best American band just because of their influence, their longevity. Um, but beyond that, it's hard, you know. And somebody asked, "Is the band?" Uh, um, a great U.S. band, and of course they're mostly Canadians except for Levon Helm. Although, of course, their music is very Americana music, obviously. Yeah. Um, but you know, they're just. You know, I think of the greatest bands in in rock and history. It's the Stones, it's the Beatles, it's the Who, it's Led Zeppelin. I mean, it's the sort of the obvious ones. And you know, even more modern bands, even like U two or or Radiohead. Th those are sort of the biggest bands, and you just don't have that in the U.S. the same way. Um, it's an interesting cultural divide, um, and I wonder how much of Dylan has influenced that. I mean, it's hard to say. I, I feel like his influence, and this goes back to what I was asking earlier, his influence is um, not always obvious, but it's palpable. And I, one more thing we didn't talk about is that his voice. I mean, you know, Dylan as a singer is conventionally not a great singer. We know this. I love his voice, but he's not, I mean, I love Tom Waits too. So look, I'm, I'm a little bit crazy, but I love his voice. And I always think of Dylan as somebody who made it possible for anyone to sing rock and roll, because if Bob Dylan can do it, then anybody can do it. That's true. That is true. And I think um, he kind of showed that it it does matter, but it's not the only thing that you need as a singer-songwriter. And again, that's what I like about Dylan. I feel like <clears throat> he does he does kind of march to the beat of his own drum in that 
you know, he's 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 like one of those, and this happens a little more in modern music. But you know, you don't have to have all the tools. You don't have to look a certain way. You don't have to to be a certain way. You don't have to be the glossy pop star. Um, you know, giving the the polite and proper answers right. at, the, at the press conference. And also, you don't have to have that that glossy voice. You don't if if you have like a soul and if you have something to say, then that's enough to see you through. And maybe actually thinking about it, maybe that's his biggest contribution in, in terms of you know you, you don't have to look like a pop star you don't have to be like a pop star to to still be in that kind of area and and to make music i mean there there you know you don't have to you don't have to um be a certain way now i mean to be popular now maybe you do have to be a certain way or look a certain way or act a certain way but i do think there's an idea in implicit in dylan's you know entire persona that you can do what you want to do and create good music. And that is, and that is something that I think lends itself more to a sort of singer songwriter ethos in the United States, maybe even in other places. Um, now I want to, I'm curious one thing here, because I mentioned this before you said on, I, I want to get, I don't want to do a rankings of <laughs> albums, even though that's the obvious thing that men do when they talk about music, they rank. It is a, it is a, it is a thing. Sorry. I do it all the time, but, but, uh, I was curious for this, and I'm not going to ask you to rank them, but I have basically my list of sort of Pantheon Dylan records. Blonde on Blonde, Blood on the Tracks, Bring It All Back Home, Highway 61, Freewheeling, Bob Dylan. Those are, I think, everyone, not everyone, most people would agree, five of his best albums, probably the most influential. At Bring It All Back Home, maybe some would disagree. I think it belongs in that, in that collection. Yeah, but beyond yeah. those, would you agree? I mean, is there, am I missing anything with those, with those, with those five? Is that, is that the right... I mean, would you put no, yeah, put time I out think, of mind in there? Yeah. No, no, no. I think fans would, but I think the general public wouldn't even have heard, have heard of it. So, yeah. It's yeah, so, probably true, actually. So what is, what are your, and since you basically looked at, and and, looked, and of course you're doing another season starting in January, so obviously I'm going to ask you a little bit what you, the preview, what you're going to be looking at then. But you've listened to all these Dylan records. What what are your favorite sort of non-Pantheon Dylan records? Uh, well, my favorite album of his is, is not in that list you gave me that five um i know and it was blonde on blonde for a long time <laughs> maybe this is i think i'm a bit of contra uh, contrarian too at heart maybe that's why i like that in him but my favorite dylan album is oh mercy which um is really don't, don't get me wrong it's not a classic not a classic. i wouldn't say it's a classic album um i'd say personally it's my favorite album it's 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 the one i enjoy the most um, I don't. It's not, not. It's not his best album. I can. I can tell the difference between best and favorite. Um, but I think that album is so interesting, and I've never heard a record quite like it. And there's albums that sound similar to it because Daniel Lanois, the producer, has produced other albums in a similar kind of way. But I think the genius of that was Bob was writing great songs, which is what you need for a good album. Um, if you believe his autobiography, he was writing very quickly in some strange yeah. situations, um, mostly in his house. Um, and they combined great songs with this incredible swampy New Orleans, very atmospheric sounding sound that Daniel Lanois had developed with Brian Eno and would and, and with U2 as well on those U2 80s records. Um, and on paper, those two shouldn't really go together. You know, Dylan and this kind of atmospheric, almost ambient at times sound, but they fit so perfectly together because Dylan is a great late night artist. He, he writes great late night songs. And I always think Blonde on Blonde is a late night album. Um, 
and by coincidence or by design, the the sound that Daniel Lamoir has is also a great late night sound. So you get this kind of amazing late night album that sounds like it's coming out. It sounds like it's being blasted out of New Orleans. And Dylan has, for the first time in a long time, got stuff to say on that record. And it feels like he's been thinking about stuff from a different point of view. And really, you can tell it's a creative time for him because there's lots of great little decisions he's made on those songs. And it really serves that album to become, well, my favourite Dylan album. And I think one of the best sounding albums I've ever heard. So, okay. I couldn't agree with you more. I, I, it wasn't necessarily my, the one I would, I think I had it second in my non-Pantheon list of favorite Dylan albums. I, I love that album. Um, I remember I remember buying it on cassette when it came out when I was in high school. It's it's It has, a, has a, like a real nostalgic element to it for me that I remember listening to it and just listening to it obsessively and just really being blown away by the sound. I think you're right. And this is, I think, what makes us a little bit kindred souls on Dylan is that I love the music. I love I love the lyrics. I love the the, the songwriting. But but it's the the musically what I, I've always captivated me about Dylan. And that album is musically, I would except maybe for Blonde on Blonde, I think is most adventurous uh, and sonically creative record he's ever done. And I also think that album really kind of presages the next thirty five years of his career. I mean, I think you. I was listening to Rough and Rowdy Ways, which I want to get to in a second uh, before this, and I was really struck by how the sound of Oh Mercy, you can really feel it in, in Rough and Rowdy Ways and his later, his later material. Oh, oh Mercy is, is definitely the blueprint for this great third act of his career that we're getting now. Definitely, definitely, definitely. And I think I like Rough and Rowdy Ways a lot and it's an album I love, but I feel like there's very, every now and then on the album, it feels like Bob's doing a bit of a Daniel Lanoir impression in a good way, but not quite getting there with the magic and not quite achieving it. But I think the the one thing to say about Oh Mercy and the thing that really I think elevates it is is the song most of the time and the way that I mean the lyrics and and we can I can talk for hours I won't don't worry but I can talk for hours about the the lyrical device in it and the theme of and the whole idea of the song is about the moment where you're just almost getting over grief but not quite and and grief still got a grip on you and that's all amazing about it but the way Daniel Lanois arranges the song is incredible because they decide that they're going to use feedback as the kind of main guitar sound in the song. And Daniel Lanois, the producer, just layers this feedback of guitars on top of each other. And they end up being like a string quartet made out of guitar feedback. And it's such an interesting, weird, yet completely perfect sound for that song. I've never heard yes. anyone do that before. And and the the inventiveness behind it, and and most importantly, it serves the song. It's just so so clever, and that's why I think most of the time is is one of his best songs because it's it's not only clever, but it's it's got this amazing bass as well. I agree, and of course, I think lyrically, it's 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 such a powerful song, um, and I think it's about scars that don't ever heal, and it's a difficult song to hear, difficult song to to like to contemplate its truthfulness, um, and you know, it just it's it's I agree with you, and I, I when I listen listen to your the podcast as the first episode, I listened to it, Oh Mercy, and. You talked about that, and I just felt like you know simpatico with your way you think about this because to me it is it is really his most powerful piece of music. Um, <clears throat> I would have I would I I probably had John Wesley Harding uh, as my I put it as my as my favorite non pantheon record, and I and I don't know that I would have said that a year or two a couple of years ago, but it was a big pandemic listen for me because it has a very apocalyptic mm. sound to it, and I can't really even explain. I, I think something you said in one episode about 
a lot of what Dylan music does, it creates a sense of place. And it's like, I think you mentioned something that sort of creating, it almost creates a landscape painting. I think what, I can't remember what song you, you used to reference that. And that album, there's a simplicity to it. I mean, I agree, sonically, it's not anywhere as interesting as, as, as sort of Blonde on Blonde or other albums of his, but there is something very powerful in that record that I just, has always appealed to me, always gets grabs me on some level. And, and I, I think it's a beautiful album, um, even though the themes are incredibly dark. Um, it, there's just some, there's a real beauty to that album, but I agree with you on Mercy. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to say, this is not my top t 10 of Pantheon records, but I will say one album that I love of his that, 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 that I think gets no appreciation at all. And this is going to be a very surprising one, I think, is a, a, a 90s record of his acoustic album called Good As I've Been To You. I love that album. And it's funny because actually this is where we disagree again, because you, you, you did an episode on this and World Gone Wrong. He did two back-to-back -back acoustic cover albums. Yeah. You liked World Gone Wrong more. I like yeah. this. I've been to you more. And again, I'll get back to what I like about that record. There's a messiness to that record. It is Dylan in a studio playing guitar. And the, the guitar is not perfect, but there is an um, there is such an organic and natural and 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 just, I don't know, primal feel to that album that I just love. It just, it really, even though it's all cover songs, it just really works for me. It is. I've 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 grown to appreciate those albums more and even doing the episodes on them made me made me interested in them more but I, I i struggle with them a little bit because i'm not the biggest fan of covers albums in general anyway sure. um but you're right again it, it, it's it's dylan doing what he does and that's something you wouldn't expect and doing it in a quite interesting way i mean i don't know many artists that would would record two back-to-back -back covers albums in their garage <laughs> like right. kind of a multi-million selling recording artist um and some of the songs are interesting but yeah I, I do struggle with those albums a little bit but um you're not alone because i think it was about 24 hours after i put the episode up for maybe it was well gone wrong i can't remember but one of them and uh the emails were flooding in angry angry emails michael uh, <laughs> You know, really? I'm still emotionally recovering from some of them, yeah. Uh, but that's a very popular album in in Dylan's fan base. Um, so yeah, I, I'm I'm willing to be proved wrong on that. <laughs> Is there any album that that you that you did a review of that you ended up thinking less of after you did the review? I I, I I'm gonna I gonna I would guess on what it might be, but but I'm curious if anything that comes to mind for you. Um, I'm trying to think. <sighs> maybe maybe Nashville Skyline a bit. Um, there were there were songs on there that I started to pick apart and think there's not actually that much here to say, <laughs> which is unusual for a Dylan album because usually you're having to ah. edit yourself. Um, Empire Burlesque, I didn't grow to like more, but I grew to hate like even more. Like, this is terrible, but I, I can't stop listening to it. Like, I those 80s <laughs> drums, give me more of them and I, I want to be, I wanna be uh, angry. <laughs> that, that album does not, does not work. I thought it was Planet Waves, actually. That's true. Yeah, I yeah, I'm not. I'm again. That's probably me on my own because that seems like a very popular record with Dylan fans, especially. But I am not the biggest biggest fan of it. I, I don't dislike it. There's some great songs on there, amazing songs on there. Um, but I can't remember what song it was. There was one song that I was a bit kind of. What was it? Um, I think it was maybe was it Wedding. Dirge? Was it Wedding Song? Dirge, that was it? I think. Yeah. Yeah, or Dirge Wedding. Song. Wedding okay, song. yeah. And um, again, there were some angry emails. How how dare you call this song average? I think was one of them. <laughs> I don't I don't love that record. I mean, there are things on it that I like, but it's it just feels I don't know. Um, 
it could have been a better record, I guess is what I, and it's weird because it's with the band. It's a great backing band, obviously, but it just doesn't really work for me. Um, I, th- I want to ask, so, sorry, go on. Go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Go ahead. I, I've got a bit of a theory that I think when people, when that came out, people were, um, uh, had huge expectations for it. And, and it's one of those records that, they kind of elevate a little bit because of the band and everything else. And and maybe if you came to it later or came to it a few years after it was released, maybe you're not quite as keen on it. That's my, that's my theory on it. Okay. I want to get to Ike as a question. I want to get to in a second, but I wanted to mention one more thing that, and that is the, 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 the mid seventies records too. Um, that's one where I really appreciate the, the podcast because it made me really reappreciate those, those albums. Um, I, I street legals album that I listened to when I came, when I bought it years ago, didn't listen to it much afterward. We went back to it. It's a phenomenal record. Uh, I think mm. it's one of his better um, non-Pantheon albums. And mm. I almost like it more than Desire, which is a weird thing to say because Desire is a fantastic record. But um, I can't get past Joey, which I think is just a really uninteresting song. Um, and yeah, and I think the, the thing I'll say about that record is that like, there's two great songs in that record. There's Hurricane, which is one of his best songs. I mean, and musically, one of the most with Scarlett Vera's violin, maybe one of the best songs he ever did. And there's Isis, which is a great song. But Mozambique is not as good a song. One More Cup of Coffee is not as good a song. Sarah is not as good a song. Uh, and I, am I, I tell me if I'm, this, I just don't, I don't think it's, it doesn't, the, the, it's like the highs are too high and the low, and the, the rest of the album doesn't quite reach that level. It does feel inconsistent, that album, definitely. But I, I've got a lot of love for Black Diamond Bay. <laughs> you know that is fine. a good song yes yes i just i don't know and i think also the other one of that period is, is shot of love which i just listened to your episode on that i love shot of love i think that's a great album but although lenny bruce is not a great song uh but i i you know it's funny listening to your to your pocket i mean you're right sonically doesn't, doesn't work so, but, I, but again like i love the greasiness of that record i love the messiness of that record and you're right it doesn't sound as good it could have been better produced um but i just find it I don't know, for whatever reason, that album just, uh, maybe it's because Every Grain of Sand is one of my favorite Dylan songs. And I'll tell you a, a funny story, and then I want to get to your question. Um, I got that, so about 30, 20 years ago, 20, 23 years ago, I saw, Dylan was doing this tour with Paul Simon, and he did a bunch of um, small venue shows that he announced like day of. So he was in New York at the Garden with, with Paul Simon, announced the show at Tramps, um, which is this club that no longer exists. It, it was a, actually a block from where I used to live in, in Manhattan. And I went over there and, I, and it was like tickets were like $100. And I was like, that was a lot of money back then. I was like, I don't want to spend 100 bucks for this. That's like, that's too much money. And I remember I walked away and I'm like, walk away. I'm like, what am I nuts? It's Bob Dylan and Tramps. I got to see this. So I went back, bought $85, bought a ticket. Best show like I've ever seen. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a legendary show. You can find it on YouTube. There's lots of bootlegs of it. Um, the It Ain't Me Babe that he does is extraordinary. Um, but he does, I'm talking to this guy before the show. We're just kind of chit-chatting. And I said, I really want to hear Vision of Johannes, my favorite Dylan song. He plays it to the song of the night. Gorgeous. And I remember I said to him, I, I, I leaned over the guy, I'm like, I can die now. I heard Visions of Johanna by Dylan in concert. That's it. Three songs later, he plays Every Grain of Sand. And the guy leans over me and he goes, aren't you glad you didn't die after Visions? You wouldn't have heard that. That <laughs> is one of my all-time favorite songs. It's a beautiful, beautiful song. Um, and I think it's one of the reasons why I love that album so much. Um, you know, it just, even though I, re- I recognize all of his shortcomings, I just think it's, I don't know. That album just is, is one that I love. Um, I think you could parachute that song into the worst album of all time and it would elevate yeah. it to good. I think that's it's it's such a good song that it, it's and and that does happen on some of his 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 not quite so good records that there's 
usually a redeeming quality in a song and and that that kind of saves it and he's very good at chucking a classic in or or not in in some cases and that just being part of the outtakes but yeah that can um, save it so i want i want to get to this comment from Ike. she said because you mentioned this to me on an email you said dylan's autistic and perfectly demonstrates the incredible talents creativity so common to people on the autism spectrum could you maybe just if you want to unmute yourself maybe just say what you what you mean by that? I've, I've never heard that about dylan before I could, well, let me let me unmute you. Yeah, uh, I'm unmuted. Um, yeah, I <laughs> I can't even carry a tune. And my son, who's a drummer, always says that I'm on the first and third beat when everybody's on two and four. So <laughs> I'm not. I'm definitely not weighing in musically. What I am weighing in on is um, psychiatrically. Okay, because that's my forte. And Dylan is the is a an, a perfect representative for the talents and the skills and the contributions that we never thought that people with autism can make. He has all of the signs and symptoms of autism. Um, if you look up the uh, famous people with autism. Uh, on Google, you'll see his name there among um, Einstein, Carl Jung, James Taylor, Emily Dickinson, Michelangelo. Um, he brings those special qualities and talents from the way the autistic brain is structured for those of us that are not autistic or neurodivergent. Um, and everything that you've said, all of the adverbs and adjectives that you've used about him are absolutely 100% bullseye on target. And um, it is because of his autism that he has made such a tremendous contribution that would do, not do you think be because possible. Of, it it creates like more focus in his music. How, how do you, can you give me an example of how, how it Yes, the, uh, you mentioned his integrity, you mentioned his authenticity, you mentioned his focus, you even mentioned his uh, late long nights. People with autism do their best work at night. Um, they're night people, they usually are night people, they're not day people. Um, they're not particularly skilled at relationships. Um, but they are the category okay, of people. He's, he's fine with relationships. <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't mean he can't have them, but um, it's very different. Um, he also, you know, is uh, the perseverance. And uh, let me see what else. What else can I tell you about that? Uh, just the way he thinks. The stubbornness. And, Stubborn, no, not necessarily, it, it's not stubborn. It's not stubborn, it's perseverance and it's focus, it's hyper-focus is what it is, it's not stubborn. Um, we see this a lot in people who are artists, music's Van Gogh, music like Dylan. We see it in the creative arts because their brain is structured such that it, it's wired for creativity and passion and for hyper-focusing and sticking with something and making sure that it's authentic and that it has integrity 
um, and that it's unquestionable. Hmm. Um, that's really that's really that's really interesting. Like, I hadn't I hadn't thought about that in, in the context of Dylan, and, and I mean yeah. there is something about his his personality that is, um, and I mean maybe you can kind of that that comes across in his music in a way that is really. He, he as he, I said, he's not. He's not an easy person to to like unless it's an artist. He's not a warm artist. He's not somebody who caters to his fans. He's not. So, like, I can't even imagine meeting Dylan and talking to him. I feel like it would be the worst thing that could ever happen. I would not want to meet Dylan. I wouldn't want to talk to him. I think it would be so deflating to do that. Um, and yet he holds this appeal over 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 uh, so many millions of people around the world. I mean, how do you sort of explain that kind of um, that kind of dichotomy? I think you're 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 both uh, kind of probably right about him. I think he he can be um, he can be a uh, not a difficult character. Difficult is not the right word, but but out of step with a lot of other people in terms of in terms of uh, the way he socialises. I mean, if you if you read um, Joan Baez's book, you hear some not horror stories, but you hear some stories where you're a bit like he's not the best at this stuff. He's not the best at interacting with other humans, and he he kind of seems right. to have a very different approach to that. Um, I'm a bit like you. I'm not quite sure I'd want to bump into him in the street necessarily. I mean, there's a lot of famous people that I is nice are nice to meet, and in my work life, I've met some famous people that were fun to meet. But I'm not sure Dylan would be one of them. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> all I agree. You've just listed. Um, but then I think the and again, maybe this is the, the point you're making. But I think that in a way fuels the artist, and that is uh, you. You kind of get that with the artistic bit you you have to have the miss the yin, the yin and the yang you have to kind of have both those things and and i i think that maybe that's why or a, a reason that he's such an incredible artist um and you kind of just have to take the negatives with it i think that's right i i think i look i mean i think maybe for me and i i think probably from what i can tell from you is that that integrity that artistic um um uh, what's it, what's the word? Artistic. Um, uh, I'm looking at expression, vision, is what is what is compelling to me. You know that the fact that he was getting booed at these shows that he was playing uh, in in England and was enjoying it that makes him so much more appealing to me as an artist because it says to me that there's an integrity, there is a, an authentic, authenticity to his music that attracts me. I mean, and it's I guess in a way. As a it's a as a rock and roll fan, you know that to me is rock and roll. That to me is the essence of rock and roll. You know, is that kind of um, not just integrity, but sort of I don't give a fuck <laughs> kind of attitude that is what make, is what I think compels us to listen to it. And that's obviously we love the music, we love all the different aspects of it, but there's there's the aesthetic of it, there's the cultural elements to it that make it. So, and he is to me the personification of it. Um, I think he's, he's I, probably probably the most authentic. Uh, I mean, you mentioned the Rolling Stones earlier and and uh, the Sex Pistols, and I think they are way down the authenticity list compared to Dylan. I mean, especially with Sex Pistols. Um, but I, I struggle to see kind of any other artist. Maybe there's maybe two or three that are as authentic as him. He's kind of almost religiously authentic, and and I think sometimes to his detriment, but. But again, like you say, I think that's probably a major reason why we all like him. I, I mean, I think it's why I like the Grateful Dead so much too. I mean, there is, an, I mean, whether you're a fan or not, there's an authenticity, authenticity to their music and also commitment to 
this is the kind of music that we're going to do and we're just going to put it out there and people are going to either like it or not like it. Um, that I think attracts me to them as a band. But you're right. It's, 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 um, and look, I like stuff that's kind of contrived too. I went to see Lizzo last month. I loved her. She's amazing. Uh, you know, it's a highly produced show, but she's not a contrived artist by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, in fact, she's quite opposite. There's a real authenticity to her as well, but her music is, you know, highly produced and so forth. Um, but, you know, that, that has its place. That has its place, but there's something about Dylan that sort of puts him in a different, different, uh, um, category. Anyway, this has been, I don't want to keep you all I'm like, I know you got to get home, you know, see your family and so forth, but I want to just, this was an awesome conversation, Ben. I hope we can do it again at some point. Just so we know, everyone who has not signed up, uh, not subscribed to Ben's podcast, you need to do so today. Immediately need to do that. When he uh, begins again in January, you need to sign up for the Patreon. I assume you'll have a Patreon, Ben, as part of the, the podcast. I don't know. I mean, I start, we started doing it and it was a lot of fun, but um, then Amazon paid me lots of money. <laughs> so I couldn't say no. I've got I've got a young kid. <laughs> so I had, yeah, that's I had right. to do it, which I didn't want to do, but they it was taking up so much time, the Amazon series. Uh but yeah, we'll see. But yes, it is back oh. the, the Bob Dylan podcast is is back in the new year. Um and I made and something. What do... Go ahead, go ahead, sorry. I made um, uh, a thing called Blood on the Tracks, which you mentioned earlier, for iHeartRadio. And that was, they they kind of let me do what I wanted. So we told the story of um, Dylan's 66 motorcycle crash right through to to now. Um, and uh, it was so much fun. And um, if you give that a listen, it's great. It's it's, it's Bob Dylan uh, narrating his his life and telling us these great and, and sometimes in, insane stories. Oh, that's awesome. I can I, I I will sign, sign up for that as well. And you should also buy Ben a cup of coffee. And Ben Kiesel, what 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 albums are you going to be doing in the new year? Can you uh, all back home is is the is going to be the big one. I'm going to do multiple episodes on that because that's my when I said earlier about um, buying the albums in in university. That was the first one I bought, and um, I remember hearing Subterranean Homesick Blues and just being like, oh yeah, I remember this song. So it's pretty good. Um, and yeah. that was that was a song that hooked me kind of straight away. Um, so that's the one uh, that's going to be um, that's going to be the big focus. But there's only a few left now. There's only about four or five left. There's some dodgy yeah, ones. Yeah, you don't have many to cover, go. Which um, which I kind I don't I don't mind I don't mind covering the the less well received ones. It's it's fun to pick up answers. You, work out where it went wrong. You've done Love and Theft, right? You haven't done, but in Modern Times, you haven't done anything, right? Or have you done Modern Times? Done Modern Times. Yeah, that's one of my favorite albums as well. I think that that's that's quite underrated actually. I'd I'd probably include that in my in my list of. Of not his biggest, but but quite underrated. Yeah, that whole that whole time out of mind, love and theft, and um, modern times are all. And I love the other one too. Um, what's it called? Uh, the one after that, um, together. Some, what's it called? Together um, through life. Together through life. I love that one too. Those are all four. Of those are great. Um, but again, Ben, you you've indulged me, and I really appreciate it. And I I can't thank you enough. I'm going to send this out. Hopefully, people will sign up for your wonderful podcast. Listen to your. You just a. You have a real. Um, you have a, you're really good at this, and I really enjoy listening to what to to your podcast and to your takes on Dylan. You have a there's a lot of passion in it, and I, and I sort of and all great art comes from that place. Um, and I feel like you know there's real passion in what you do and and your love for Dylan, and so I really appreciate that. So thank you, and thank you for taking the time to talk to me today. No, bless you. It's been it's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me on, and uh, thank you for listening to me ramble about Bob Dylan. I, I don't do it enough. I definitely do do it enough. <laughs> <laughs> you do, do, I think you probably do do it enough. <laughs> but thank you. No, it was, it was a real pleasure. Thank you. All right. Well, thanks again, Ben. And thank you, everyone, for listening. And I'll see you again in two weeks. Bye-bye, guys.